It goes for, yeah, but we never, we never did get to the, uh, you know, fist pumping. All right. Also, he's going to play it again so you can get there. All right. You guys got it? Let's get the rhythm. Go, blue. All right. Hey, so I was messing around the last two weeks with the Block M coming up like I didn't know anything about it. Obviously, I did. I knew nothing about the music. I knew nothing about that. But good move. Good move, guys. All right, welcome everybody. I will introduce our topic if I get into a topic today uh, because we're going to offer opportunity for you to ask any questions on the heels of concluding our series, the title of which you see on the screen, Identity Crisis, Who Does God Really Say That I Am? So if you have some questions, and I'll do my best to answer those. And I mentioned that we would do that this week. And if you don't, then that's okay. If you have enough for part of the time, that's okay as well. So we'll see. First, let me just mention some things that are coming up, though, by way of announcement. Tonight is uh, community groups. That's our home groups that meet on the first and the third Sundays of each month. If you're not in a community group, I encourage you to consider being a part of one. So let us know that you'd like some information by sending uh, the keyword CBC Connect. Text that to 97,000, CBC Connect to 97,000. One week from tonight, 6 o'clock, is our annual Adult Christmas Fellowship. And that's for adults, so we don't have any child care, so we ask you to make arrangements for that. And we do always have a, a very good time. Pastor Larry mentioned there's some new, uh, new thing feature that we're including this year that's a secret. So, and you've told me about it though, right? Okay, I know what it is. So yeah, but it should be, should be fun and uh, always is. So please uh, plan on coming. And then I want to make you aware that for Christmas and New Year's weeks, we always, uh, on one of those, uh, the Sundays for those, we have a Sunday before or after Christmas, whichever one's closest, before or after, where we don't have our second hour, we just have a, a Christmas service, worship service, and then the same thing for New Year's. So those two Sundays in a row. And those happen to fall on the 26th and the 2nd. So uh, Christmas and New Year's are on Saturdays this year. So the following day, Sunday the 26th, we will just have a worship service at 10.30. So we'll be announcing that for you over the next few weeks. But not 9.30, 10.30, and no, and no second hour. And that'll be on the 26th and also the following week, day after New Year's, on the, on the 2nd. As far as this hour goes, uh, I don't want to start a new series where we invite the community just before the holiday. We never do that. We always do it in January, sometimes as late as February. Uh, I'm as I look at the calendar, I think January 23rd is the best date for us to start a new series in here. That new series will be on resolving conflict. So we're going to invite folks from the community to that series, and I hope it will be of help to you all as, as well. Uh, and that will probably start on January the 23rd. So we have, counting today, five Sundays, five sessions here. There are more Sundays, but five sessions, because those two Sundays that I mentioned, the 26th and the 2nd, we won't have this hour at all. So counting today, we've got five. And uh, the topic that I plan to deal with over the next several weeks is worry. 
that what does the Bible teach about worry? What's the Bible teach about anxiety? But I will, and I will start that today, uh, or I'll start it next week or halfway in between, depending on whether you guys have any questions about our Identity Crisis series. I mentioned last week that if you have some questions about it and uh, it's about you, but you're embarrassed, then just say I'm asking for a friend and we'll, and we'll all know it's about you, but still. So if you will ask the question as loud as you can, because we're not going to have mics going around, and I'll repeat the question so that everybody can hear, and especially so our live stream folks can hear. Anybody have any, any questions about our series? Sir. That's great. So Carl's asking, uh, what do I do on Monday, <laughs> you know, uh, when I go to work? And so tomorrow when I go to work, how do I apply my identity to the work environment? That's what the question is, right? Yeah, so very good, very good question. And what we, we need to do with that, as with all things, is to ask ourselves, why does God have me doing this? So the first question is always a purpose question. Why? Why does God have me doing this? Whatever it is. You know, you, in your case, you work in the auto industry and in, uh, as a journalist and all of that. And so, but, but why? Why am, I, why am I doing this? Why did, and why does God want me to do this? But it could be something else. It could be you're a stay-at-home mom. Why does God have me doing that? If you're a husband going out to to work, or if you're somebody who is going to school, you're not in a, you're living at home, you're going through school and trying to prepare to make your own way and make your own life, well, why am I doing that? So every piece of it has to start with that. On Monday, every Monday, and really every day, you want to remind yourself, why am I doing this? What am I supposed to be doing? And what is the right answer to that? Uh, I mean, I I know, but I'm going to just have you think. You don't have to say it out loud. Just think about it. You know, the right answer to that is conveniently the right answer to every question that ever gets asked in church. If you, in any church setting, small group, any of that, if you're asked a question about, so why should we, and you say, to bring glory to God, then you will look really spiritual and smart because that's always the right answer. The Bible teaches that that's the right answer right? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 31, whether therefore you eat, you drink, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. The, so that's scripture, most important. The Westminster Confession of Faith is the catechism. Westminster Catechism is famous for its very first question. What is the chief end of man? And the famous answer is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So the first question is always to say, why am I doing this? So whether it's I'm a stay-at-home mom, whether it's I'm a student at school, whether it's I'm a journalist in the automobile industry, uh, whatever it is, whatever it is, you ask yourself, why am I doing this? And the answer is to bring glory to God. Now I have to then take it the next step and to say, what does that mean? Okay, it's to glorify God. That's the right answer. 
But what does that mean, and then what does it look like? So what is the glory of God? What is it? And then we can start to talk about what it looks like. I have said a bunch of times uh, in teaching and preaching over the years and as part of this series, early on in this series, if you still have the notes, you will find me defining what glory, the glory of God is. But it is the, the character of God. God's glory is the display of His character. So in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, when Paul said there, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it all to the display of the character of God. I mean, that's the way you could say that. Do it all to the displaying of God's character. In context, what he was saying there is, that's the end of chapter 10, but it goes back to a discussion that starts in chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And many of you are familiar with that. You'll remember that 1 Corinthians chapter 8 deals with, hey, what should I do about eating food that has been previously sacrificed to an idol? That was the question. So in pagan Corinth, they had a pagan temple. All the people in the Corinthian church were formerly pagans themselves who frequented the temple. So they were very familiar with the sacrifices that went on. And there were occasions apparently where people would eat the meat for dinner that had been previously sacrificed to one of these idols. Well, now I'm a Christian, but you know, I'd still like to use this meat, or I'd still like to go to my friend's house who uses this meat, who's still a pagan. Is it okay for me to do that? And Paul starts to answer that question. And his answer in chapter 8 is, uh, look, I know and you know that meat is just a dead animal. This is my paraphrase. But it's just meat. And so eating the meat itself is just another dead animal. All things being equal, nothing's going to happen out of that. But not everybody knows this. He actually says that. Not all have this knowledge. So what you need to concern yourself with then is how or whether you participating in this otherwise innocuous thing of eating meat might adversely affect somebody else who looks at that and goes, that's devil meat you're eating. Here I've got this Christian friend who's eating this devil meat. And it's just vexing my soul. And in, and in fact, but you're my mentor. So if you're eating it, I'll eat it. And then they violate their conscience. And Paul says that's not a good thing. So he uses love as the measure for whether or not you should eat this. Love for somebody else and what effect it might have on them. And he goes in chapter 9 to give examples of how he does that in his own life. Lots of things that I, Paul, could do that I don't do for the sake of other people. I just give it up. And they're not wrong. So he, he mentions taking money for his ministry. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says that those who benefit from the gospel ought to support, again, I'm paraphrasing, those who, who minister to them that way. So that's why we have a paid staff here. That's why the church pays me because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. But he himself in founding the church, he said, 
I'm not going to do it because I'm not going to allow that to get in the way or anybody accuse me of saying I'm, I'm doing it in it for the money. So I'll do my tent-making stuff so that nobody can accuse me of that. I have this right, but I'm giving it up. The meat would be okay, but you may need to give it up for the sake of somebody else. Why? Because love requires doing what's in the best interest of other people. Now, why do I care about showing love? Because God is love. It's the character of God. And so he's just gone through and labor for 8, 9, and 10. He's gone through showing that as you make these kinds of decisions, they need to be made on the basis of the character of God. In this case, the love of God for other people. And you want to demonstrate that love for other people. Therefore, if it means giving it up, give it up even if there's nothing wrong with it otherwise. Therefore, whether you eat, that's why he says eat, because it's all about that eating thing, going back to chapter 8, or you drink, but let's just include whatever you do. Do it all to the display of the character of God. All right, so what do I do on Monday? I say, why am I doing this? I'm doing it for the glory of God. What's the glory of God? To display God's character. So now I ask myself, how in this God-assigned context, my work, my school, my rearing of my children, can I today display the character of Jesus? What I want to do is display, I want to glorify God, I want to show Jesus in going about my work. So you, know, you see what you're doing there now. You're, you're, you're thinking about who you are. You're thinking about why you're here. I'm a child of God. I'm an ambassador of Christ. I'm a representative of Jesus. My objective in this, as in all things, is to display his character. And so I'm asking, okay, Lord, how can I do that? So in a work context, that has lots of avenues, doesn't it? How do I interact with my coworkers? How do I defer to my coworkers? How do I agree to disagree? Am I honest? Do I have integrity? Can they count on me? All of that is representing Jesus, glorifying God, showing the character of God with my children. If you're a mom at home with your children, you're teaching them about God all the time. You're teaching them whether or not God can be trusted by whether or not you wig out during the day. Your kids are learning from you whether or not God is really on the throne and all-powerful. Kim, Kim gets mad. She doesn't get mad, but she doesn't love it when I use her as an example. She's in the room here. I do this with some fear and trepidation, but I'm going to use her as an example because I happen to have seen for many years a mother doing this with her children and teaching her children to trust God all the time. All the time. Uh, when I talk about the worry thing here in a little bit, I'll talk about Lainey. Because Lainey, and she does, she's given me permission to talk about this, but that's been a struggle for her. And for, since she was just a little thing, it was a struggle for her. So she would be with us, but mostly with Kim. And she would say, a storm arises, and she's worried about what's going to happen. Is our house going to blow down? 
And she would ask, Kim, is, a, is our house going to blow down? What do we got to do? And Kim would always take her back to God. God protects us. God takes care of us. God knows what's best for us. Let's just talk to God. Let's always go to God. And the girls learn from a young age, always, always go to God. But see, you're representing that. Now, if you freak out, then your kids are learning something different about God, right? So that mom has to every day say, Lord, help me to represent Jesus. Help me to represent my Lord, you, accurately in the way I respond, in the way I talk, when I'm at work, when I'm doing it. Why am I doing it? I'm doing it to the glory of God. How do I do it to the glory of God? I do it by displaying his character. What do I say on Monday, every Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and every day? You get up and you say, Lord, how do I go through this day displaying you accurately in the place that you've assigned me? Okay? Yes? So I think what Phyllis is saying, I'm going to say it out loud and then you can, but uh, I think you are saying, okay, but how do I know if God wants me to be here or there? Don't I have to determine what my gifts are in order to decide, am I supposed to be going to school right now to be a student? Am I supposed to be out in the workaday world? Is, is that what you're asking? No. Okay. I totally missed what Phyllis was asking me. And she's saying, you have to employ your giftedness, and clearly I have no giftedness for understanding what someone is saying, okay? But please, try again. Okay. Saying, trying to be an encourager is a gift, I believe, that God has given me. And so in the workplace, don't I need to remember that that is my gift? I see. That maybe my gift isn't to shove my sewing methods down my coat. Okay, uh, now thank you, that's good. So she says, where does, my, where does our individual giftedness fit into this? As I think about every day, how can I bring glory to you? Uh, what am I gifted to actually impart to, to folks? And that's, that's a good point and a very, and a very good question. Now, you may, you don't, none of you have to like my answers on any of this, okay? I, this is just my two cents as best I can glean it from what I understand about Scripture. Um, Gifts, gifts help people simply as they are exercised in whatever context God has placed you. Which means I don't have to think a whole lot about what my gifts are. I know there's, you know, there's been for years in evangelicalism big emphasis on identifying your gifts. There are gift tests that you take. I think I mentioned them in the sermon a few months ago. Have any of you taken those evaluations? And you go, yeah, you take a gift test. And so it asks you questions, and by the time you get done with it, you like tally a score, and it'll tell you what biblical gift you have. The problem with these is a couple of things. One, the gift lists in the New Testament, and there are four of them. There's 1 Corinthians 12. There's Romans chapter 12, there's Ephesians chapter 4, and then there's a short list in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. So you got these four gift lists. And if you put all the gifts that are listed in those, you get about 23, something like that, low 20s 
gifts. And so what these evaluations do is they take all of those and they put them together, and then they try to figure out which one of those you have by going through this process. A couple problems with doing that. One, those gift lists are not exhaustive. Those lists were never intended to be everything that God does in the life of his people. There's other stuff. So in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is just giving a list of there's this and there's this and there's that, but he's not saying there's only this, this, and that, and we know that because the list in 1 Corinthians 12 isn't the same as the one in Romans 12. And the people who first read Romans didn't have 1 Corinthians. So if they thought it was an exhaustive list, they got ripped off. They weren't designed to be exhaustive lists. Two, even with the ones that are listed there, some of them we don't even really know how they functioned. Actually, for a number of them, we don't really know how they functioned. So the person who puts together your test has to come up with some kind of definition for that gift in order to evaluate whether you have it. And since they can't for a lot of those, here's what happens. One of the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 in the King James Version is called helps. The gift of helps. That is the gift of helping people. It's actually, the Greek word is the same word for ministry. I have the, Greek, the gift of minister, ministering to people, serving people, the gift of helps. In my anecdotal experience, over decades of people who have taken that, about half of the people who take a test like that, guess what gift they come down with? Helps. You know why? Because it's a catch-all for everything we couldn't figure out. So one, the, the tests don't work. And nowhere in the Bible does God tell us to try to figure out what our gift is. He's simply telling us we're all different. We're all wired differently. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. That Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which he prepared in advance for us to do. His workmanship is his poema. That's the Greek word, his poem, his work of art, his, his, uh, his craftsmanship. And God has made all of us differently and uniquely and marvelously. But the way I discover that is simply by obeying God in the places he's assigned to me. So in your sewing work, you do what I said about displaying the character of God. And as you do that, your personality, your wiring, your uniqueness comes out in that. And because you want to love these people, you want to help these people, you want to display the character of Jesus to these people, as you see where you have strengths to help them, you'll employ that. If, you're, if you find that you can really encourage people, then you do that. You exercise that. But you never have to say, okay, this is my gift. Therefore, i got to get out there and start encouraging people. You'll just encourage people by virtue of being you, wired the way you are, obeying Jesus in the place that he has assigned you. Good question. Sir. Yeah, hey, and you can't good. ask a question if you're not in the first two rows. Yeah, that's right. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I just actually had this question from somebody that's struggling with this. And I would say that, you know, our purpose 
purpose in life was to give glory to God. And he said kind of smart aleckly, you know, was, uh, why doesn't God have enough glory? Hmm. How would you answer him on this? So Paul's question was, and uh, he said a friend asked him this. That's right. <laughs> Uh, we believe you. But uh, someone asked him, a relatively new Christian, did you say? Uh, uh, struggling. Struggling Christian. And Paul had said, hey, everything you do is for the glory of God. And he said kind of in a sarcastic way, um, what, God doesn't have enough glory already? He needs glory from me? So, yeah, it's a good question because God needs nothing. God is self-contained. Acts chapter 17 where Paul is preaching to the philosophers in Athens, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is not served by human hands as though he needed anything. He doesn't need, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need you. So God is completely independent of his creatures. He doesn't, need, he doesn't need that. He doesn't need it. He does deserve it and desire it. So God remains God no matter what, no matter what we do. But God deserves that glory, and he tells us he desires that glory. Now, why? There is nothing higher to which God can aspire except his own glory. You say that again, think about it. There is nothing higher to which God can aspire Except his own glory. That's, he's, in fact, in the words of John Piper, he's stuck being God. <laughs> so what God has is who God is. And who God is is beautiful, all-sufficient. And because part of who he is is love, he desires to share who he is with others. So his glory then is brought about by us, reflected by us, by him working in us to change us, conform us, and then we reflect who he is back to him. Now let me keep going. That's why we were made in the image of God. First two chapters of the Bible tell us we are made in the image of God. What that means is to reflect God, to reflect who He is, to glorify. It's another way of saying to glorify God. And God, because He is love, He wants to share Himself with His creatures. So He makes creatures with the capability of doing that. That's a loving act on His part, to share who He is. There's nothing higher, nothing better than Him. If I were to say, hey, y'all, I'm here to share myself with you because I know it'll benefit you guys greatly. That's pride because I'm not all that. God is all that. And so God, in effect, says that. The best thing I can do for this world is to have people who experience me and reflect me. So he desires it for us it benefits us, his image bearers. And you remember back in 
Genesis chapter 1, he not only makes us in his image, but he says, be fruitful and multiply. Have you ever considered why he wants us to be fruitful and multiply? Because not only, he, he doesn't want one mirror reflecting him back to him. He wants lots of mirrors reflecting his character back to him. So, in answer to your friend's sarcastic question, no, God doesn't need. God is self-contained. God, God was God for eternity past before he ever created the world. But love motivated him to share who he is with creatures that he created. And he created them a particular way, and he I said, I want there to be a lot of you. Let me go a little bit further. Romans chapter 9 hints at why God allowed sin into his world. Because if everything is for the glory of God, and it is, then that includes allowing sin into his universe. Somehow that redounds to the glory of God. And it does. Because it's against the backdrop of sin that you see attributes, character qualities of God that you would not see otherwise. And Romans 9 suggests that. What if God, wanting to make his mercy known, made objects of, that would end up, because they sin, being objects of wrath? And then he goes on to say he did this to make his glory known. That's Romans 9. And that whole discussion that starts in Romans 9 ends in Romans chapter 11. To him and through him and for him are all things to him. Remember? Be the glory forever. So, he doesn't need it, but it's another way, it is a way for him to display aspects of his character that there's no way to do outside of creating a world, giving people the ability to choose, which includes sin, but God did all of that for his, to show aspects of his glory. Good question. Who else? Sir? How should we practice grace? Oh, graceful reproof. Okay, yeah, yeah. So Luke's question is, how can we be graceful in reproving folks? So reproving means rebuking, correcting. So you're going to, uh, you're going to someone else who you believe needs help, and how do I do that in a graceful way? Well, one... Uh, Make sure that what they need to have corrected is something that God says needs to be corrected, not something you think needs to be corrected. I have seen people who want things to be a particular way. God never said they have to be that way. But they decided they should be this way. And then they go to other people and they reprove them, they rebuke them, they correct them because they say, you're not doing it right. So for whose benefit now is this happening? It's happening for the reprover. I want you to get it together so that you'll be better at what it is you're supposed to be doing, which will make life better for me. So the first thing is, ask yourself, for whose benefit is this? Now, if it is, if it is the case that the person is doing something contrary to what the Lord says should be done, 
then yes, you do want to go to them. And then how do I do that in a grace-filled way is Luke's question. I first have to start. Uh, I try to do this every time I have somebody in my office, every time I'm having to talk to somebody in a hard conversation. I spend a lot of time saying, hey, listen, you're terrific. And I'm, and I'm not lying. No, I don't, I'm really, I'm not, I'm not going to make that up. Because every person is fearfully and wonderfully made. Every person is made in the image of God. And so I, I try to spend some time. Look, I'm going to talk to you about something, but before we do that, I want you to remember this, okay? <laughs> this is who you are. This is who God has made you. This is what I think of you. I'm so thankful for you. I, you know, I just go, so fill it with a bunch of truthful stuff. You know, I'm not asking you to make it up. I'm not asking you to just butter them up, flatter them by lying to them. No, truthful things. And you can say that about anyone made in the image of God. There's always something, some things, and you should start it with that. Secondly, I then also say, and by the way, I got my own issues. So I'm a fellow traveler. I struggle too. You know, in my case as a pastor, you know, people think, oh yeah, right, you got, I'd like to have your problems, you know. No, I've got my, I've got my own struggles. I'm a sinner. I have to do the same. I need people to do for me, what I'm doing for you. I've had people do that for decades with me. That's why God gave deacons to a church. <laughs> Kidding. Not really. The <laughs> deacons, leadership team, do help with that. To say, hey, you're doing something wrong. You're emphasizing something you shouldn't be emphasizing. You know, whatever. So, Luke, make sure it's something that they need, not something you need. Make sure it's something God says so that you can show them in Scripture that God says it. And then preface it with, they're telling them, encouraging them, building them up accurately. And then, build, and then telling them, I'm no better than you. And I don't come to you with a superior stance on this. Now, having said that, I'm concerned about this because I love you. And here's what you're doing and here's what God says. And I'm hoping you'll hear me. A lot of times people won't hear you. They don't like it. God will honor what you did if you do it in the right grace-filled way. You can't control the results. You can only control the process. So do it that way and then leave the results to, to God. People often don't, don't want don't to hear it, but sometimes they do, and sometimes God uses you as an instrument of change in the life of somebody else. And when he does that, it is, a, it is a blessed thing. But you run the risk because, you guys have heard me say, you run the risk because you love them more than you what? Need them. And I've told people that. I, I understand this risks our friendship if you don't receive it. But I love you more than I need you. And I'm willing to risk it because I care for you. Okay? Who else? Sir? Okay, yeah. So Wes was bringing up, some of you may remember a few weeks ago, the illustration of a couple that has already 
having some tension, and now they're in a, in a house party, and the uh, hostess made a really good dish. The husband compliments the dish, and then, though, uses it as an opportunity to take a dig at his wife and says something to the effect, I wish my wife could cook a decent meal. And then she shoots back at him. Well, if I had a husband who would help around the house, and then here they go. You guys remember that? And so Wes's question is, how could she have done better with that? Because if you remember, the lesson focused on her response. He's, he's the real jerk who initiated this thing. But then it was focused on her. And the reason, I gave some reasons why it was focused on her. I mean, one of those was that this is where Christians often live. We're, Christians are not often, hopefully, the initiator. Christians are often the responder. And we're responding to what, it may be a Christian, but a very, a very immature Christian is saying or doing. So we find ourselves, if we're growing in the Lord, around people who are not so much growing in the Lord, and now we've got to learn how to respond to them. So how does she respond to something like that? Wes and everybody, the response in the moment is dictated by the preparation beforehand. The response of the moment is dictated by the preparation beforehand. If she has made no preparation beforehand for her heart and mind, and she comes to that moment, she'll respond exactly the way she responded. She'll shoot back. Game on. Oh, really? You're going to embarrass me in front of everybody? Got plenty I could say about you. Here it comes. And many of us, as we think about that, we're going, yeah, that's pretty much what I do. So the response in the moment is dictated by the preparation beforehand. So how does she prepare herself beforehand? She looks at every task she does. We look at every task we do as not anything that defines us. No task you do defines you. Your identity is not in what you do. If your identity is in what you do, what happens when you can't do it anymore? And you see it happen to people all the time, don't you? Their identity is in their career. Their identity is in their work. Their identity is in their children. I don't have the children moved out. I don't have the job anymore. I got, I, I got a diagnosis. I'm sick now. I can't do the stuff that I did before. Why, why is it that people go through midlife crisis? Because the things that I've identified my life with, I now have come to the realization they're not going to happen. That's what midlife is. The time where you realize all the stuff you dreamed about ain't going to happen. And because you've defined your life that way, that realization is, is crushing. So the gal doesn't define her worth, her value, by how good her cooking is. Before God, she does the best she can with it. And then if it's not good enough, I'm, if I can improve it, I'll be happy to try to improve it because I'm a servant. I love you. But I do my best, and if 
you don't, doesn't meet your standards. What I just did by loving you and doing my best, it meets God's standards. And that's good enough for me. I have to do exactly the same thing in preaching and teaching. Everybody has opinions, right? People can say, you shouldn't have said this, you shouldn't have said that, and they might be right. I, I don't always get it right by any means. And so if you feel the need to correct me, do that. Do it the way I described to Luke. But do that. But I, my point is I have to do the same thing because the response in the moment when somebody is saying, you don't have it, you don't have it right, is going to be dictated by how you prepare beforehand. And if I find my identity in how much people love and appreciate what I do, then when I get somebody who comes along that doesn't love it so much, then that's going to be crushing for me, and I'm going to respond defensively. So I can respond non-defensively if all I care about is doing the best I can before the Lord, serving you the best I can. Same thing for that wife. Doing the best I can before the Lord, serving my husband the best I can. And then when that's not good enough, I'm good because God's good with that. That's how she does it. Okay? All right. We're done. So those of you that said, all right, I want to ask my question, too late. Again, <laughs> we've only got two minutes left. But thank you for the, the good questions. End of that series. Next week, we'll start this series on worry. And the reason I want to talk about worry is because um, I want to talk about worry because I'm worried about you. And I'm being somewhat facetious with that, but I am concerned about Christian people and how worried Christian people are. I'm hearing a lot of worry from folks. And when I hear worry and I compare that to what Jesus says about do not worry, there's obviously a disconnect there, right? So I want to then take some time for us to examine why are we so worried? What are we so worried about? What's the antidote, the answer to that worry? We'll start it next week. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, day, this Lord's Day, every Lord's Day, to be able to gather with your people and learn of you and be encouraged and to encourage one another. I thank you, Lord, for this time to be able to try to pull together some of the principles that we've discussed over many weeks now about what you teach about us and who we are in Jesus and how that should radically shape the way we see ourselves, the way we see others, the way we interact, how we find our value, and, and whether we're defensive or whether we're, whether we're comfortable in who we are in the Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that that will be true of all of us, that we need, none of us will feel the need to, to, sh to show off. None of us will feel the need to be affirmed by others because we're fully affirmed by you. And because of that, it affects every aspect of our being and our interactions. May that be true this afternoon. May it be true this coming week. 
And we ask you this week, Lord, in the places you've assigned to us, help us to do what we talked about, to remember why we're there, to bring glory to you, to display your character in the place that you've assigned to us, uniquely made by you, to do it in a unique way there, to take joy in that and to look forward to the adventure of each day and how that's going to unfold as we represent you. Help us, Lord, to do that. And help us to do it all week. And we ask you to grant us safety as we do. Bring us back together next Lord's Day in the name of Jesus. Amen.